You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to Essential Apple Podcast 146. Um, obviously the Apple event is on Tuesday, so uh, all of the news quote unquote uh, blogs are full of nothing but speculation about what's coming or people uh, trying to tell us that they know what's coming. Well, uh, we're not interested in any of that. We're really not. We'll wait until Tuesday and see what Uncle Tim and Co have to tell us. So, uh, nobody but me was available to come on the show today. They're all off trying to do the last weekend of summer thing. But uh, I am joined by Mike Bombick of Carbon Copy Cloner fame. Hello, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Uh, well, apart from the fact that I have a streaming nose for some reason, I've either got some sort of cold or a sinus infection, um, I'm going to stuff Kleenex up my nostrils and uh, carry on regardless, Mike. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I hope you're good. Um, obviously, we know I've been on the Catalina beta and I, I've spoken to you actually, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, didn't I, about the whole uh, disc thing. So um, we've had a kind of a bit of a, a chat about it previously, but I thought it'd be really great if you could uh, talk to us and explain to the to the listeners, uh, particularly some of the kind of magic that uh, Apple have done with the APFS and uh, also, like you know, how that's likely to affect uh, users, which I think is probably not very much unless you care about how these things work, um, but also, you know, how it's affected CCC and, and what sort of um, shenanigans you've had to do behind the scenes to, uh, you know, keep us all safe in our cloned protective uh, backups. Yeah, sure. Uh, the, probably the biggest thing that they've introduced in Catalina is the concept of a volume group. And a volume group is where, and first of all, we've got this concept of a volume container uh, with APFS. And within a container, you can create however many volumes you want to, and they all share the space of, of the whole disk. So that was a, a really great thing um, for partitioning, because in the past, when you partitioned a disk, you had to dedicate a certain amount of space to each volume. But now you can have multiple volumes in the container and they all share the space. So in Catalina, Apple introduced a volume group within the container. And that's not an actual structure. That's just a concept that says these two volumes work together as a single entity. And you can see both of the volumes if you look at them in disk utility. But in the finder, you see just one volume. And the way that Apple leveraged this in Catalina is they're creating a read-only system volume where it has just, it has just about 10 gigabytes of system content, and you can't make changes to that volume. And then all of the other stuff and then bits and pieces of the system that have to be writable are kept on a data volume. And the way that this works is when you apply the upgrade, um, the installer takes your current system volume and converts it to a, basically just tags it as a data volume. And it, they remove some of the system components from it. And then they create this secondary system volume, and then the installer will install the, uh, the system components onto the system volume. And then it just groups these two together. So when you start up the system, um, both of these volumes get mounted at the same time, and they're presented to you as a single volume. 
And that's the piece of magic that a lot of people are kind of wondering about. Like, how is it that we've got these two different volumes, but they appear as one volume? Like when you're looking at the system volume in the finder, you can navigate directly from it into your users folder, for example. So you can't, you can't see where you're going from one volume to the other in the finder. And the way that that works is with a concept called a firm link. And there's about uh, 20 of these on the system. And basically there's a folder on the system volume that links automatically to a corresponding folder on the data volume, seamlessly and in the background. You can't see that these are links. There's no special icon for these folders. Uh, the file system just automatically jumps from one volume to the other when you're navigating through these in the finder. And Apple calls these a bi-directional wormhole between two file systems because not only can you go down, you know, say you started the system volume, you can go into the users folder and into the data volume, but then you can also get back up to it seamlessly back to the system volume, which is probably a real technical detail that most people won't notice, but it's just part of what makes it a very seamless transfer from one volume to the other. And like I said, the two volumes actually appear in disk utility, but only one of them is presented in the finder. And that's actually just because the data volume is tagged as a hidden volume. Uh, but they're both there and you can find them if you wanted to. So, um, I mean, when I first came across this, Mike, when I first installed the Catalina beta, I, I mean, I, I'm not super technical when it comes to, uh, you know, file structures and, and so on, although I understand the basic concepts behind them. My immediate thought was that it was a kind of um a bit like when you used to do a soft raid mm -hmm. is, is it is it something oh, 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 but obviously i know a raid you would either mirror it or stripe it so it's not exactly like that but the the way that you have two volumes which kind of appear in the finder as if they're one um one entity is that is that kind of part of how it works or you know is that a reasonable analogy <laughs> It's a good analogy, but technically it doesn't work like that at all. No, that's um, what I, that's what I thought. Yeah, they don't they don't actually work like that. But right, right. And actually, Fusion is kind of a similar concept where you have two physical devices and you're putting a single volume on top of that. Um, this is just a little bit different because you know it can sit on top of all that hardware and even sit on top of a Fusion volume. Um, but it's more like if you have like a symbolic link and it's sitting on your hard disk, and when you click on it, it actually takes you to a folder on an external hard disk, like if you kept your music library on an external disk. As you go through that symbolic link, you pass directly into the new, the external volume um, without any, you know, special UI. It just, it looks like magic. Yeah. And that's all these are, these firm links. That's what they do. Yeah, because fr from what I've read, I mean, Apple have, have called them firm links rather than, you know, hard links or so symbolic links. Is, is that because they kind of work in both directions? Yes, they, it's kind of in between a soft link and a hard link. It's kind of funny, their, their choice of words there. <laughs> well, I guess they've just, you know, leveraged the kind of, you know, that's hardware and that's software. Well, in between you have firmware. Well, in between hard links and soft links, you have firm links. Yes. <laughs> I suppose it's better than calling them semi-rigid links or something. <laughs> yes. So, um, obviously, the other, the other thing... Um, that I've read about this and, and I've found is that obviously this whole kind of um, volume group, a volume container, as you said, you mentioned partitioning. Um, as I understand it, is that that, that works a bit more like um, if you have um, if you have a virtual machine, you can create, you know, you can create, uh, when you create a virtual hard drive for that machine, 
you can create hard drives which you know you can specify what the size of the hard drive is likely to be but it only takes up the space that it's actually using so you know in a virtual machine you can say i want to give that i don't know 500 gig hard drive but if you've only got 100 gig of data in there it only actually uses 100 gig of hard disk space even though it shows up to the the virtual machine as a much bigger drive yeah precisely that's that's actually a really good analogy so that's that's kind of how this whole volume group works yeah that it it's kind of like a dynamic disk size no matter what it reports to the to the hardware so that if that's so i'm i mean i'm guessing here but as i understand it that's kind of how you can have that drive and you can stick another partition in and it won't it doesn't affect any existing partitions because what you're doing is saying okay in that in that empty space whether it claims to be used by another partition or not you can stick another so the, the, the partitions are kind of dynamic as it were as i understand it yeah precisely yeah so they work a bit like um what those disk images you can make the ones that that stretch as you stuff more things into them right like sparse images yes yes sparse disk images that's the one yeah okay so in a way what you're saying is each partition in a group is in a way like a sparse bundle it could it just magically can expand as you stuff things into it yeah each volume within it yes yeah excellent um because the other thing is, um, which maybe the listeners don't, although this is about APFS, in this in this version that they're shipping with Catalina, they've kind of turned on a load of things that APFS can do, which they didn't activate when they first released APFS. Am I, am I correct in that? Is that? Uh, I don't think so. What are you thinking of? Well, I'm thinking about this thing, like they're actually making use of, um, you know, the volume grouping and uh, it was that well the, this the space sharing is is not new and that's something that they've been taking advantage of um pretty much ever since mm, high sierra shift right uh, but the volume group concept is brand new okay and that, the volume group doesn't affect space sharing at all it's really just a, a concept that says that the volumes within this group behave like one volume and only one volume will be presented in the finder when this volume group is present okay so that so yeah, that part is new then Yes, yes. Yes, okay. That's the only new concept that I think that they've introduced in Catalina. Now, in macOS Mojave, they introduced a defragmentation feature very quietly, um, but it was disabled by default, and that's still disabled by, by default on Catalina. So I don't know if that's... I, honestly, I'm not sure what Apple's intention is with that feature. It's uh, very lightly documented, disabled by default, and doesn't seem to do very much. Um, it may defragment file data, but uh, I did some testing and I'm actually going to post a blog article next week. Um, I think it may, this defragmentation feature may be intended to improve performance of APFS on rotational disks. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I'm getting the feeling that, that uh, rotational disks are, are going the way of the floppy disk. I, and... I, think I'm, I think I'm with you on that. I mean, the thing with rotational drives is... Um... On my last laptop, which was a uh, you know a t- uh, 2012 uh, MacBook Pro, so it was the last of the DVD drive models, and um, I upgraded that by taking out the DVD drive and putting in an SSD, um, which allowed me to have you know to put all my uh, system and stuff onto the SSD, but keep my large rotational drive for storage. Um, but when I moved up to uh, the one I've got now, the Retina MacBook Pro, uh, with an SSD. Um, at first, I thought I was really going to miss that much um, 
space, but actually, as you know, as time has moved on, we we keep more stuff in the cloud, more stuff, uh, you know, particularly photographs with uh, HEIC. Is that the one? Um, you know, are much compressed uh, better. I I, oh, right. I I think that rotational drives, at least for probably most consumers, are likely to be going um, the way of the dodo, except maybe for. Um, Except maybe for, you know, people like photographers or videographers who want a lot of, um, you know, large amounts of storage. But that's, I th- I can see that being more kind of, um, you know, network storage, something that most people probably wouldn't bother with. Well, network storage is horrible, but I think there's always going to be the person that needs the eight terabyte hard drive or the 10 terabyte hard drive. Um, but as far as the system disk is concerned, um, I think people are going to find that the rotational disks just don't don't work well for a system disk. And really that's because Apple made a choice in how they implemented APFS. On HFS, all of the file system metadata is clumped together in one section of Oh, damn. Hello? Hello. Sorry, Mike. I, I literally lost all my internet. It just went completely. Everything just went out. Totally. Right. Uh, we're back. Sorry. So, uh, yeah. Where, where were we? Uh, you were talking about... Um, on HFS, how all the data was, uh, all the metadata was clumped together in one space. Right. So with HFS, when you format that volume, um, disk utility will, or the file system will set aside some space just for file system metadata, which is like the folder hierarchy, the file names, file attributes, things like that. And then the file data goes out to a separate part of the disk. So as you're enumerating the contents of that volume, that's basically just a, a straight read of the file system metadata. You can think about the hard drive actuator on that old rotational disk. It doesn't have to move very much to get the data from that clumped area of the uh, the hard drive. With APFS, Apple didn't do that sort of optimization. They optimized APFS for SSDs. And with SSDs, there's no seek penalty for getting data from random parts of the disk. Um, So with APFS, the file system metadata is scattered all over the disk, which is fine for an SSD, but on an HDD, on a rotational disk, that hard drive actuator is just bouncing all over the place. And you can hear that chatter. It's it's really loud and, and crazy. But the performance is just horrible. Well, I was going to say, that would also, that would explain something to me, uh, Mike, which uh, the listeners have heard me uh, possibly mention, which is um, I'm running my MacBook Pro um, on the Catalina beta, but to record the... Uh, to record the show because Paul Kafasis's rogue amoeba apps, he, he never actually, he doesn't issue betas to, for the beta period. He works on making sure that they'll work correctly when, you know, when a new system goes live. Sure. So uh, obviously without those apps, I can't record the podcast. So to record the podcast, I actually um, have to boot my MacBook Pro from my carbon copy clone of um, the Mojave uh, install, which is on um, a, rotation a, a rotational drive, and yeah. the performance on that drive is, um, well, yeah, it's horrible. Uh, you know, when yeah. you're in an app, once you once I get everything up and running, it, it's fine. But the actual launch speeds, you know, to to boot the machine, I can literally go away and make a cup of tea while yes. it loads all the apps. Um, and I. I've been putting that down to some extent to the fact that obviously um, it's a rotational drive and it's running on USB. Mm-hmm. But um, even then, I thought that's awfully slow, even for that. So, 
yeah, that makes that explains a lot to me because obviously what you're saying is that the way that um, the Mojave data is cloned onto that drive is optimized for or not optimized. It, it's not optimized because it, it doesn't matter on an SSD. But right. so when, yeah, so that that would explain why the performance from my USB drive, whilst you know, is bearable as long as you're not trying to do anything in a hurry, um, is by any other standard appalling yeah and you know it really aided me um initially i was i was the same way it's like well you know it's a rotational disc and yada yada they're always slower than ssds i felt we're just spoiled with ssds uh but man i started doing some testing and it just it, it really itched at me it was just not nearly as good as i expected it for expected it to be even for a rotational disc and that's when i started digging into it and i figured out that it's all the transactional stuff that um, is just not as optimized for APFS on rotational disks. And if you think about it, when you're booting the system, the system is seeking and stacking just thousands of files. So there's a lot of transactional stuff that occurs in the boot process. And if APFS is not optimized at least a little bit for rotational disks, it's just never going to perform well on them. And I mean, we're three operating system versions out, and it's, there's still no indication that Apple's going to do that make a throw a bone to the HDD users. So I kind of feel like it, it's either just not going to happen or maybe, you know, maybe on Tuesday we're going to find out that it's all new Macs and only SSDs and rotational disks. We should just stick it under the back tire of the truck and run over it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, nice as it would be, I'm sure, for most of us to have external SSDs merely to maintain, um, you know, our safety net CCC uh, clone. Um, I have to say, you know, that you can still go and buy a pretty big rotational drive for a fraction of what you would pay for an SSD, even though, I'll be fair, SSD, you know, prices are plummeting as we speak. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I'd love to see Apple come out with their own SSD that beats the price off of everyone else. Yeah. That would be be a great announcement on Tuesday. Yeah, and one more thing. (laughs) And one more thing. The cheapest SSDs on the market. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people would be flying flags at uh, top mast if uh, if that was to happen. Somehow, um, Apple and their margins, I don't think that's likely to happen. (laughs) No, no. So, um, coming back to that slightly, obviously, um, the other thing you told me, I think, in an email was that um, Catalina requires even the backups to be on a on an uh, APFS volume is that right because I know the last time you came on the show um we were talking about uh Mojave I think and um we were talking about how carbon copy cloner could clone an APFS volume onto an HFS volume and back again kind of on the fly uh Mm -hmm. without you having to worry about um because at that time uh if i recall apple was saying you shouldn't use apfs on a rotational drive um now look looking at the performance of an apfs formatted rotational drive maybe that was why but um yeah apple you know it's kind of funny they've been really you can't nail them down on a recommendation um and it was kind of weird but i mean we we tried to to eke out APFS on the backup for as long as possible primarily because the performance was better and because we could do it, um, you know, as far as retaining your backup, the fidelity of the backup, that's fine. HFS, APFS didn't matter. 
uh, and even now for user data, for the most part, um, HFS is still perfectly fine for the for backup purposes. But for the operating system in Catalina, Catalina just refuses to use HFS as a startup disk, and that's because of the volume group um, structure. Catalina right. requires that read-only system volume, and it requires a volume group that has you know the read-write data volume, and we just can't replicate that in HFS. So it's just a non-starter. Okay, so um, from carbon copy cloner's point of view, if you were to say, I want to clone my, my drive, but I don't need to make it bootable, would that mean you could still use an HFS volume? Yeah, so if you wanted to um, back up just your user's folder, for example, um, we're not going to impose the APFS requirement on that sort of backup. So if you were to just drag your user's folder onto the source selector, you can back that up to anything. That, that would be fine. It's specifically when you choose a Catalina system volume as the source, that's when we're going to say, all right, this looks like a bootable backup, and we're going to go down that avenue and make sure that the destination can support it. But if you wanted to back up a single folder or a non-system volume, then that you could still back up to an HFS volume. Okay, right. Well, that, that, that's handy to know. I mean, for me, I'll be honest, the only kind of uh, clones that I, I make uh, using Carbon Copy Cloner are bootable clones of my of my system because obviously from a you know from a laptop you've basically only got one volume in there so that's right. you know uh, if that's my backup and it is very much my fallback if something goes horribly wrong even even if the performance from a you know a USB rotational drive is diabolical it, it's better than nothing. You know, which is of exactly the, you know, for me, the main point of having a, a clone. It's like, if something all goes horribly wrong, you know, if, yeah, my, you know, if my laptop bursts into flames, I, you know, yeah. I can take I can take my clone and I can stick it into another machine and I can get, you know, up and running. So, yeah, um, and it, you know, it's different for some people versus other. For some people, that's exactly what they need is just a just in case I would have this. And, you know, if it takes 10 minutes to boot, I, I still have a working system and, and I would be able to live with it. Uh, but there are some people who are like, you know, producers or, or whatever, and they absolutely have to have a system that would be functional. Those are the guys that are, are going to have the two terabyte SSD and they're going to have flawless performance from the backup. Um, it, you know, it just depends on, on what you need from your backup. Well, yeah, exactly. And um, I would say, you know, if I, um, you know, my, my, my laptop is my, you know, it's my personal machine. And so I have my, my carbon copy clone um, as a backup or, you know, in, in, at the moment so that I can boot back into Catalina. But it's not mission critical. So, yeah, I'm ha I can live for the period of time that I need to, to do that with, with that performance. And I will, um, you know, when I'm able to run purely in uh, Catalina, then I shall make a clone of Catalina. And uh, but yeah, like at work, if that was a mission critical situation for me, um, where if something went horribly wrong, I needed to be up and going, you know, and I couldn't put up with a terrible for performance. Of course, then you would, you know, I would most definitely go out and buy myself a five hundred or one terabyte SSD because then the clone would be almost as fast, you know, exactly as fast. the internal drive. Um, yes. From from my point of view, my my carbon copy clone backup is exactly that. It's a recovery position. If everything goes horribly wrong, if if my if my laptop imploded when I got a new laptop, I could plug it in and it, and be back where I started and clone it back again. 
But in a work situation, obviously, you, yeah, I could not at work be in a situation where I was running off a, uh, you know, running off a drive that was making the machine run at a quarter speed. That would not be, that would just not be viable. So in that situation, I would obviously invest, be investing in an SSD. And like you say, um, if you're a producer or a videographer or something, then, but then again, it, then it becomes a return on investment business expense, doesn't it? Right. You know, you know, it's not, um, I always say it, it, it's all different when you're making money out of it, as opposed to, you know, it's, if, yeah. if that's what you're doing to make a living, then it doesn't matter if you have to invest, I don't know, let's call it a thousand dollars for a backup solution. If that keeps you working when something goes wrong, that's a thousand dollars well invested. Um, for somebody at home, you know, like me, a thousand dollars would be an awful lot of money to spend on something that I hopefully am never really going to need. But um, so, um, sorry, yeah. So, um, how much of a challenge was it for you, Mike? Really, to um, how much re-engineering did you have to do to CCC? Um, yeah, it was. This was the single largest change that Apple's made to how the system boots since we started doing this 17 years ago. Um, as far as re-engineering, though, I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but the um, the infrastructure that we had within CCC already was really easy to adapt to this. Um, so it wasn't a huge technical challenge, but it was tedious. Um, it was an incredible amount of logic because a lot of the stuff that we're doing once, now we're doing twice. So now we've got two volumes to deal with. And the other thing is that we support five operating systems with CCC, which is something that we're probably going to have to stop in the near future if Apple keeps throwing changes like this every every OS. But, you know, with five operating systems, some having HFS start at this, some having APFS start at this, some having APFS volume group start at this, there's a lot of logic and scenarios that we have to step through to make sure that we're going in the right direction. So from that perspective, it was it was a lot of tedious work. But for the most part, we had uh, we had a proof of concept done at the end of the week that Apple announced it in WWDC. And then I think by mid-July, I had a beta out. I was going to say, I know, I know that you had to beta out really, really quickly because I think I was probably on Catalina Public Beta 2 when my CCC said, um, you know, Mike's released a beta that, that, you know, at least partly works with uh, Catalina. Would you like to install that? Like, yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. I think, yeah. um, was, uh, um, I might, I might be wrong here, but I, I think did your first beta say not guaranteed for startup drives or something? I I um, I, I know you, was... you had a beta out really quickly, and I think the first one said on it, you know, don't don't trust this for a bootable clone. I think. Yeah, yeah. So actually, the the first beta we put out in May, and I think I can't remember if I posted another beta after that. But I mean, when we when we realized how much work it was going to be, I put out a beta that basically said. Don't expect this to work. Maybe I just put it in the release notes. I said, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. It's all this changes. Um, it was when Apple released beta four that I put out my first beta that worked with Catalina. And that was, it's, it's always so rocky. It's tough working within the beta period because, you know, not only are we changing a lot of stuff, but even beta to beta from Catalina, a lot of stuff is changing. And Catalina beta four, both beta three and beta four, introduced such mind-blowing, huge changes in the system. I couldn't even believe it. Um, so, you know, beta four came out and I had literally just posted our beta 
And then I started doing some testing on beta four. I was like, Oh, well, this doesn't work now. And that doesn't <laughs> work the same way anymore. Back to the drawing board. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we did finally post um, CCC five, one, 10 and 11 um, a couple weeks ago. And it's feeling pretty stable. Catalina is feeling pretty stable at this point. So barring any major changes, we're calling this um, qualified for Catalina. And I've got uh, some documentation, uh, some videos that we've been working on. Um, and actually early next week, we're putting our documentation out for translation. So unless Apple drops Catalina on you know Tuesday, which I don't think they're going to do, um, we're going to have uh, one more bump in CCC and then all localized documentation 100% ready for Catalina so that before people start downloading it, they can start learning about it and getting their Mojave backups uh, in place and, uh, you know, hit the ground running. I think on the whole, it'll be pretty smooth. Um, there's been some things with uh, iCloud that have been panic inducing. I lost everything that I had in iCloud, um, which thankfully <laughs> I, don't, I don't keep anything important in there, but it was quite a shock during the, the beta testing that uh, all that stuff disappeared. Yeah, I must, I must. Uh, but, I must Other admit that, that yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I've been on the, you know, the Catalina bait, as everybody uh, who listens to this show know that I tend to live out on the bleeding edge and the minute there's a beta, I'm on it. Um, and yeah, the iCloud has been a little bit, um, I, I have to say, I've not suffered any, uh, you know, the whole uh, thing that you've just mentioned there. Lots of people were saying, you know, somehow iCloud managed to delete everything. Um, yeah. I've not had any of that. I did suffer the um, in the early betas the fact that um, every time you change something, it would it would duplicate your uh, uh, oh, yeah. folders. So, you, uh, but document folders, the document folders were multiplying yeah. like rabbits. You'd go in I there have like and there'd be twenty of them. Wow, <laughs> no, I think mine. I, I went in there one time. I thought, why does my iCloud? Why is my iCloud complaining that it's out of space? There's nothing of any consequence in there. Yeah, well, there's nothing of any consequence in there 15 times as it had gone, you know, yeah. documents one, documents two, documents three. Um, I don't know, that that carried on for quite a while. I can't remember how many betas in it was before that. Um, that, that. And um, also, as I understand it, Apple have now pulled some of the um, putative iCloud uh, features for Catalina, at least for now. They've, they've, they've pulled back from the shared folders, I believe, and... Um, I can't remember what other other uh, feature they were touting, but that's been held back. It won't be in it won't be in um, Catalina, you know, point zero. Yeah, that's one thing about Apple. They never they never move their deadline. Uh, they'll pull features, but they never move their deadline, which is actually kind of nice from a developer perspective. Uh, I tell you, the last four years where we've had these very consistent WWDC is the first week of June and Apple releases the major OS in late September. That has been just a dream to work with, that kind of consistency. It's really nice. Yep. That, I mean, that is, um, and I, you know, as, as a consumer, and uh, it, it's also quite nice to know, I think, that, um, you know, if you you can start to prepare when the, you know, when the betas come out, you know that the betas are going to run for whatever it is, you know, three months, and then it will go live, and... Um, yeah, if if some if some features don't seem ready for prime time, what they do is hold those back or just right. chuck them all together. Um, but yes, you're right. They don't. Um, I'm. I I don't know what you think about this, and I don't normally try to get into speculation. But are are you of the similar mind to me that this September event 
will be almost certainly iOS focused and that it's quite likely that there will be a later October event, maybe, um, you know, more focused around Catalina and uh, possibly some Mac hardware. You know, what's funny is I don't pay attention to any of those at all. Don't you? <laughs> there you go. Why not? I'm sure, yeah, you've probably got plenty of other things to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, my big event is early June and I am glued to it. And then it's just a matter of, you know, making sure we, we stay on top of whatever happens in September. And then I just read the news as it comes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, as you say, so, yeah, I can imagine actually from, from June, June to September is, you know, <laughs> heads down, keep working, boys, yep. keep going, keep going. Once you, once yep. you get over the, once you get over the line in September, then you can worry about all the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> then you start about, about November, you probably start planning for next June. Yeah, you know, November is about Thanksgiving for us in the States. I think that's a perfect time to apply the next, the new OS. I like to give it a couple releases to, uh, you know, let the plebeians and the masses. <laughs> what you mean, the, the let the loons products. like me loose on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know, there's probably a million or more people in the beta period. But even as you go from that last beta and then you put it out to just hundreds of millions of people, you really find all of the edge cases. And yep. it, it happens every single time, even in my own software. You know, you do lots of beta testing. You're like, all right, I found all of them. All the bugs, I got them squashed. And then you put it out. And then it's like, you know, orders of magnitude more people are using it. It's like, oh, well, we didn't see that scenario. And <laughs> so by well, November, all that stuff is hammered out. Excellent. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So there you go. There you go, listeners. That's Mike's uh, official <laughs> official <laughs> recommendation. Wait until uh, Thanksgiving or late November to uh, you know jump to Catalina. Or if you're a crazy loon like me who's been on the beta since uh, they let it out, I shall be installing it, no doubt, the second it goes live. But yeah. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, um, so there you go. Well, I'll tell you what, Mike. Um, I'm still not feeling that great. Um, so... I think what we'll do, if it's all right with you, I think we'll just take a quick look at a few uh, stories. Uh, thank you for that, uh, you know, in-depth, uh, you know, uh, discussion. But um, if we just have a quick glance at a few short stories and then I'll let you go, to be honest. Um, yeah, News-wise, not much news, as I said. Um, this one is a, is a weird one here. Um, the US has ordered Apple and Google as well, by the way, to identify users of a rifle scope app. Um, also, I've got another one there. Defense Department wants Apple, Google to review your names of Gunscope app users. Um, basically, the U.S. government is saying that um, this this Scope app, I think it's been called, I think it's called Obsidian, um, is used to help uh, you know rifle users calibrate their telescopic sight. Um, and the government are claiming that somebody has been illegally exporting said uh, the scope. Um, and they're asking Google and Apple to give up every the names and uh, IP addresses of everybody who has downloaded this calibration app uh, so they can see if they're uh, abroad. Uh, seems a bit of overreach to me, and I'm pretty sure both Google and Apple are likely to tell them to uh, take a long walk. But uh, that was a, a somewhat strange story. Um, just caught my eye, that one, really. Just another one of those... How, uh, talking about edge cases, I suppose, uh, the US are saying, if you give us all these, uh, you know, all the, all the downloads, we can find out which people are overseas. Uh, uh, not sure. Yeah, I saw that pop up and I was looking forward to reading it. 
that, yep. that article. Uh, yeah, I have read it. It, it um, neither of them particularly in depth, but they were they're both worth a glance. Um, and I think uh, <laughs> both of them come to the conclusion that it's highly likely that Google and Apple will tell the uh, authorities that they're trying to overstep the mark. Um, last week we we talked about um, the the Google uh, Zero Day uh, group uh, published a, a piece about um, what a, a fairly serious um, breach of uh, you know iOS. Uh, which was very complicated, involved long chains of vulnerabilities, um, and it was quite weird in that it, it was um, it was being said that it was uh, based around some websites with thousands of visitors per per week. Um, it would appear that uh, this was almost certainly, uh, uh, you know, uh, at the behest of the Chinese government, and seems to have been uh, targeting the uh, Uyghur uh, Muslim. Chinese population, um, which is not very pleasant, I have to say. Um, Apple allegedly are angry at Google um, and saying that they have misrepresented the situation. Um, other people are saying that uh, Apple have, you know, perhaps made a bit of a PR faux pas because they're coming across as somewhat cloth-eared, uh, pointing out, uh, shall we say, technical, in, you know, uh, technical uh what should i call it um inconsistencies in uh google's comments whereas uh, a lot of other people are more worried about the fact that the chinese government appear to be attempting to uh spy on a minority population um i'm not sure about that i i read both sides of that argument um i can understand why apple are trying to point out um what they believe are incorrect statements by google but i also do think that they have come across as being more concerned about petty technicalities um than the fact that uh the chinese government were exploiting flaws some you know complicated flaws nonetheless in ios to uh spy on a portion of their own population um i, I again i find that one difficult to to come down on one side or the other uh you know apple apple say you know very much that they want to protect the rights of everybody but um they often do seem a little bit lighter on the chinese government than perhaps they deserve um don't really want to get into politics there but again i think apple are in a very difficult situation they need the chinese market so they can't afford to uh hack off the chinese government too much but at the same time, of course, they don't want to upset, uh, shall we say, the more libertarian uh, section of their, of their uh, market anywhere else. There we go. Um, I don't know if you know anything about this one, Mike. Uh, it says private messaging apps scrambling to overhaul software following Apple's privacy changes. Uh, the, the reason I wondered if you might know more about this is obviously, you know, you have access to developer news and so on. Um, apparently, this is something to do with changes to the uh, push. Oh, on the iOS side? Yeah. <clears throat> or it... I'm, not, I'm not familiar with anything on the, the iOS side. Okay. There's certainly a lot of, there's some privacy changes in Catalina on the privacy side that uh, it's starting to get frustrating as an end user to use the system, but on um, iOS, I don't, I don't dabble in that very much. Okay, well, that, that that's fair <laughs> enough. What's the detail here? Um, iOS 13 introduced a change limiting data collection practices using uh, Voice over IP API, which has consequences for messaging apps. 
such as Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, etc. Um, the makers of encry- encrypted messaging apps such as Signal, Wicker, Threema, and Wire are scrambling to overhaul their software to protect key privacy features they believe may be compromised. Um, what Apple is doing is limiting the PushKit API designed to be used for voice over IP calls, but over time has been used for purposes such as collecting data or, in the case of messaging apps, encryption. Um, hmm, interesting. Apparently, yeah. uh, encrypted messaging apps use the voice over IP APIs uh, for decrypting messages on the iPhone in the background, and this will be disabled. Uh, right, okay, that's interesting. Um Almost sounds like they're going to have to come up with their own encryption if they want to send. I don't. I don't think it's actually uh, being used. Yeah. I, I. I don't think it's being used for encryption per se. I think they're somehow using it as a background process to, um, you know, decrypt the messages on the fly. As I reading between the lines, I have to say, because I'm no expert on such things. Um, just for what it's worth, I'm on the wire beta for iOS 13 beta. Um, I've had no issues with that, and I've seen nothing in their notes about that, so I don't. Um, then again, it's Mac rumors. You know, it's uh, the term scrambling may be hyperbolic. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say that needs a clickbait alert, but um, let's just say I'll. Uh, I shall. That's something I shall look into. I shall look into that. Um, what else have we got? Apparently, uh, if your iPad Pro is suffering from back backlight bleeding. Um, if you suffer from backlight bleeding, Apple may replace your iPad Pro for free, apparently. Um, there we go. So they should, I should think, if there's something wrong with it. Apparently, backlight bleeding occurs where the uh, seal between the backlight and the uh, LCD uh, doesn't work correctly, allowing light to leak through, causing, unsurprisingly, uh, light spots and blotches, particularly under low light. So there you are. Um, and uh, the other one is, of course, uh, Apple appears to be, well, rumours say that Apple are going to launch um, a tracking tile, uh, AirTag. I have seen somebody, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, nickname it, um, which allegedly is going to be more uh, capable than tile. Um, might be interesting, but then again, uh, if, if Apple are anything to go by, they'll cost like $100 each. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be absolutely wonderful, but they'll cost, you know, I could probably buy 10 nut tie, uh, trackers for the same price. Um, there we are. It's, uh, it's a rumour with apparently enough clout that Tile have been sending goodie bags to journalists um, and also uh, apparently um, working with Google. Apparently Google Assistant is going to be able to help you find your Tile. So uh, it's, you know, Tile are not going to take that one lying down, I think. There we are. Um, and I'll be honest, I think that's pretty much it, Mike. Um, we have here, one, one, IDC say the worldwide server market revenue declined 11.6 year over year. Um, struck me as a strange, uh, a strange thing because, you know, we're told, aren't we, as everything is moving to the cloud, that the server market is, is doing well. But um, IDC say that revenues have declined. I don't know if that means, you know, competition is meaning that uh, manufacturers are having to cut their margins in order to try and, uh, you know, maintain share. But there we are. I just That was an unusual statistic, I thought. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I've got a worth a chirp from uh, a Mac Jim. He says, uh, if you're a train user in the UK, um, he has found a free non- non-subscription app called By Train. 
UK train times from Alexander McLeod, which you can find in the App Store. There we are. Um, and the, the, just a snippet, um, there's a link here. A Redditor has turned his broken MacBook Pro um, into a kind of uh, one of these hybrid detachable iPad uh, type devices uh, by removing the screen from his broken MacBook um, and fitting his iPad and using Sidecar and uh, some other pieces of uh, Apple software technology to uh, build himself a hybrid iPad uh, laptop. There we go. That was an interesting little wow. read. Yeah, it's very, interesting. It, was, it was very clever. Um, it's very clever. I, I think most of us would probably think it's far too much effort to go into, but uh, it was, you know, it's like these people who do modding. You look at the uh, end results and go, wow, that's fantastic. And then find out that they've spent two years and, you know, $10,000 to do it. <laughs> it reminds me of the camera phone from Flight of the Concords where the guys taped a camera to a phone. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, there you go. Um, nice piece of work from him. Uh, a clever way to keep his MacBook Pro uh, working and still retain his iPad Pro as a usable, you know, detachable device. Um, and that's about it. So uh, thank you very much for coming on, Mike. Um, yeah. uh, this is the bit usually where I ask you to tout yourself, uh, where people can find you or, you know, read your blog, um, promote your, you know, soon to be released latest version of CCC and all that. So uh, over to you. Yeah, sure. So I encourage everyone to go to bombic.com or carboncopycloner.com and check out our latest version of CCC, which is now qualified for macOS Catalina. And you can also find a lot of information about what you can expect from macOS Catalina and how our new product works with macOS Catalina. Again, that's bombic.com. And like I said, I'll be posting a new blog post next week that talks about APFS performance on rotational disks. So if you're looking for some light reading for uh, going to bed, <laughs> and on a virtual blog. And um, for anybody who's interested in the APS volume groups and uh, how that all works, um, I've got a link I will put in the show notes to Mike's uh, very helpful piece, which kind of uh, explains the basics of APS volume groups. Um, I've read it. Uh, he sent it to me when I first asked him about that. Um, I don't know, back when the first beta came out, I think. Um, it's very helpful. I've published it in the Slack before, but uh, it's worth a look if you haven't looked it up. Uh, and as I say, that's about it. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. The show uh, is at Essential Apple, although I don't use that anywhere near as much as I should. Uh, you can find all of our stuff over at EssentialApple.com. And uh, I think what we'll do is we'll go over to John Nemo and uh, Mike and I will call it a show. So thanks for listening, everybody. Back next week with Ashley Hewson from Serif. And uh, Mike and I will say goodbye. So goodbye. Goodbye. Nemo's hardware store has become very fond of portable mini docks or micro hubs featuring USB-C connectivity to the new Apple laptops with lots of ports. We have two of them that we're recommending today. First one is called USB-C Travel Dock with Power Delivery 3.0. Company is IOGear, I-O-G-E-A-R dot com. And Simon will have the links and the prices for U.S., U.K., and elsewhere in our show notes for this episode. 
This is a small dock, a micro dock, micro hub. Fits in my hand. Got an Ethernet port at one end. It's oblong, about two inches by four inches, more or less, by about a half an inch thick. At the other end is a permanently affixed cable. It's about six inches long, USB-C tip. And then along one side, you've got two USB 3 blue ports and then a micro SD card and an SD card slot. On the other side, you have a USB-C power pass-through slot and then one more USB 3 port and the HDMI. This is what we use in my workshops because people come to my workshops and my classes. They don't bring any adapter. We need to project their computer onto one of my screens. Screens are HDMI and we connect one of these micro hubs or mini docks to their computer and the HDMI cable goes into the appropriate port and bingo, we are on HDMI projection. It works great. This one from IO Gear, the list price is $100 in the U.S. I've seen it in American pricing for down to about $65. So you will definitely be able to find this at a good price. Even at $100, it's worth it. Because as they say, it's perfect companion for traveling professionals. Three-year warranty. IO Gear is a very good company. I've been working with them since 2001. So that's a long time. Big fan of IO Gear. 4K resolution video output. You can charge your laptops and devices with 100 watt power delivery. Read about it on the website that we link to at EssentialApple.com. That's the USB-C travel dock with power delivery 3.0 from IOGear.com. $65 to $100 in the U.S. A similar product is called the Stago, S-T-A-Y-G-O, one word, USB-C hub. The company is called 12 South, T-W-E-L-V-E-S-O-U-T-H, 12south.com. Again, look at the website. You can see the videos and the links and the information on how to use this product. This costs $100 in the U.S. I haven't seen it on special anywhere. Again, it's worth the full price because it does something that none of the other mini hubs and micro docks do. It's a little bit more substantial. It's a full two inches by five or so inches, again, a half an inch across. It's about a third bigger than the one from IOGear. It has similar configuration, one HDMI, three USB 3, Ethernet, USB-C pass-through, SD card, and micro SD. Basically identical configuration, but the difference is in how you connect it. It comes with two cables. One is conveniently tucked into the chassis, very clever. You don't see it at first. So it pulls out and you can connect it to your computer just like the other one and all the similar products do. But it also has a much longer cable. This is about a three-foot cable with USB-C tip at the end. Because there's times you don't want it to be tethered to your MacBook Pro quite at such close range. You need a little bit of distance. The slim, compact design of Stego means it takes up little room in your computer bag or backpack. That's exactly right. Ethernet and SD card slots for creative professionals. And I can recommend both of these. Don't worry about the difference between $65 or $75 and $100 or whatever the price is in your country. Get the one that looks and feels right for you. They'll both do the job, but for a tiny bit more money, it's a bit more substantial, a bit more rugged, the Stego, and it does have the much, much longer cable in addition to the shorty cable. They've really set themselves apart. It's the only micro hub or mini dock we've seen for USB-C that is fully featured that has not one but two cable options. Well, this is the first of lots of coverage of new gear that's coming into Nemo's hardware store. So keep listening, keep following our links, and we'll have more good stuff for you every week. 
listening to the essential apple podcast and i'd like to say if you enjoy the show and would like to support us feel free to go over to the website essentialapple.com and you will find links to both patreon and the pinecast tips jar where you can make a donation towards the costs of the show Uh, or even if you're really keen you could set up a recurring payment and thank you very very much to all the people who already do support us. We really do appreciate you very much indeed. This show is, of course, part of the My Mac Podcasting Network, where you can find a variety of other shows like the My Mac Podcast with Guy and Gaz, the G-Men, Tech Fan with Tim and David, the Nintendo Club Podcast, the Geekiest Show Ever, the Three Geeky Ladies, uh... Bart Bouchotts and his wonderful Let's Talk Apple, and possibly some more that I've forgot. So why not go over to mymac.com, take a look at the available podcast, and take a listen. Hello, I'm Guy. And I'm Gaz, from the mymac.com podcast. And we're here to tell you about a very serious condition plaguing Mac users everywhere. It's known as BPSI, or Boring Podcast Sleep Induction. It can happen anytime, anywhere, while listening to dull podcasts and driving. You can prevent BPSI by subscribing to the MyMac.com podcast on iTunes. Our podcast is many things. <laughs> but never boring. Available without a doctor's prescription. The MyMac.com podcast is not responsible for loss of bodily functions while laughing. Side effects include blurred vision, nervous tics, trying not to smile, angry yelling when we say something wrong, and the inability to call our Skype number, which is 703-436-9501. Women trying to become pregnant should not be listening to the MyMac.com podcast, as it will take time away from having sex, which you normally need to do to become pregnant. So remember, listen to the MyMac.com podcast. Think of the children. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you next time.